in there, John chapter 2 in your Bibles. It was going to be Acts, and God changed my direction about midnight. And so, John chapter 2 in your Bibles, and when you find your place, if you'll stand with us out of respect for the reading of the Word of God, if you're able to stand, that is. John chapter 2 and verse number 12 is where we'll begin. John chapter 2 and verse number 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and a house of merchandise. Verse 17, I'm really interested in. The Bible says, And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I want to talk to you just a, a few minutes about this subject, the passion of Christ, or some things that gave Jesus his zeal. And so remain standing, and we're going to pray, and then after we pray, you can be seated, and we'll try to teach or preach just for a few minutes this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. And Lord, the best we know how, we plead the only thing that has power over this service. We plead the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you'll cover this congregation, this church, this ministry. I pray that you'll cover this pastor and his wife. And Lord, I pray today that, Lord, you would bind any power that would like to defeat or discourage or distract. God, we pray that you'd keep the powers of Satan out. And I pray that you'd keep your blessings to the end. Lord, Satan has fought this message, I believe. And I believe this is a message that we desperately need to hear. Lord, how zealous are we about the things of Jesus? I wonder what we're passionate about today. What is it that, what is it that motivates us, that moves us, that encourages us? And God, today I pray that you'll show us some great truths from your word Save that one that may be nearest hell in this service or others watching by way of live stream. Encourage that child of God that is discouraged. And Father, I pray that all that's done today would do two things. Number one, it would glorify thee. But number two, that would edify your church. Father, help us. Give us power and a fresh anointing, please. We love you and praise you. Truly, thou art great. And we thank you for that amazing grace that Miss Lori just sang about. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his sake, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated this morning. How many know sometimes the world attempts to send a very false impression of what Christ really was? They would have us believe that Jesus was always a very meek 
and mild teacher. And don't get me wrong, he was the meekest of all. And at times, he was the mildest of all. But the world would have us believe that the Lord Jesus was sort of soft-spoken, almost like, you know, Muhammad Gandhi, a peacemaker, never controversial. They would have us believe that everybody loved Jesus, that he was amazingly tolerant of people and their lifestyle. But the truth is this morning, there were some times in Scripture when Jesus was very passionate and very, very zealous concerning his service to the Father. We read it one of those times this morning in John chapter number two. If I could give you just a little, uh, a little background behind the story in John chapter two, Jesus has just performed his first miracle, the changing of the water to wine in Cana of Galilee. And then the Bible says that he and his family and his disciples go over to uh, the little town called Capernaum. It's known now as the hometown of Jesus. And they stay just a few days, not very long, not many days, the Bible says, but they stay just a few days in Capernaum. And then they begin to make that long track to Jerusalem. The Passover, the Passover is, is not at hand. It's what we call the preparation of the Passover. Doesn't mean a lot to us nowadays, but boy, it meant a lot to them back in that day. In fact, it was such a special, special time, the Passover that is, that we find that the roads and the bridges are, are being repaired in preparation for this special event as literally thousands will make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they're coming from all areas of Israel and Palestine and, and so they're going out and they're raising up the low spots and they're uh, making level the high spots and they're making sure the bridges can withstand the people and, and so they're repairing the transportation means into the city of Jerusalem. Not only that, but, but the tombs are being whitewashed with a fresh coat of paint. They do this because they, want, they don't want anybody to just accidentally bump into a tomb because back in that day, especially around the time of the Passover, that if you came in contact with a tomb, then you were ceremonially unclean. And so because of that, as they prepared for Passover, they would, they would paint all the tombs a bright white and that way people would know when they were coming close to those tombs. The rituals of purification are getting underway. And the money changers have moved from their uh, surrounding areas, their little hometowns, and now they're beginning, to, they're beginning to set up shop in the temple there in Jerusalem, the money changers. The reason for that was because most merchants during the Passover only accepted Jewish currency. And so many would come from many different regions and they would have a different type of currency and, and so they would have to come to the money changers and those money changers would convert their currency to the Jewish money. This had turned into quite the lucrative business because these money changers received a fee for every time they made a transaction. They would get a kickback. We call it a kickback. They would get a commission we use that word. And they would, they would get a little bit of money or maybe even a, a considerable amount for every transaction. On top of that, the high priest in that day by the name of Annas and his family pretty much controlled everything that was done 
in the temple markets. In fact, over time, you read a little history, over time, they begin to call it the bazaars of the sons of Annas. The Passover and the festivities surrounding the Passover became more like a bazaar, the bazaars of the sons of Annas. And the family of Annas would receive a portion of all the proceeds that came in during the Passover. Interesting. In fact, it gets more interesting. Every animal brought for sacrifice, which would be countless, every animal brought for sacrifice had to be inspected first by an official examiner. When that examiner would test your animal or look your animal over, he also charged a fee for his service. And so they're, going and they're getting their currency changed. They're paying for that. Then an examiner has to examine their animal that they're bringing for the sacrifice, and they're paying for that. And then it was interesting. If your animal did not meet the lawful guidelines, which for some reason seemed to be quite often, then it would be necessary to bring another animal. Well, these people had come for miles and miles. There was no way of running back home and grabbing another sheep. And so if your animal did not pass the test, well, you had the option of purchasing one from the merchants of Annas at a greatly inflated price. And so when the examiner would say, that lamb's not gonna make it, that sheep's not gonna work. But we just happen to have several on hand here. And we'll be glad to, we'll be, we call it gouging, church. That's what we call it nowadays, gouging. What was supposed to be a remembrance of God's amazing deliverance had now become more of a flea market or a money-making festival. What was supposed to be worship literally became business. And it's upon that backdrop, the Lord Jesus Christ makes his way to Jerusalem. He enters into the temple. There are thousands there. Annas and his family are pretty much running the show. And the Bible says as the Lord Jesus Christ in, enters into the temple and he sees the corruption that's going on and he sees the business that's going on and he sees the money that's being made off of what was supposed to be worship, our Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ decides to make what we would call a very zealous statement. He reaches down, no, no doubt, and there's pieces of rope everywhere. People have been leading their lambs and their goats in. And so there's little pieces of rope everywhere. And the Lord Jesus Christ begins to reach down and begins to gather these pieces of rope. He begins to tie them together like a whip. The Bible calls it a scourge. And I'm just telling you, church, you can believe what you want to believe. I started to visualize it, visualize it in the auditorium there's no dignified way to do what Jesus did. There's no way to come and topple tables and pour out money. And, uh, and the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ literally, and, I'm not, and I mean that literally, cleans house. You talk about draining the swamp. He drained the swamp that day, my friend. In fact, you go back and read it for yourself. I read it again this morning. He drove them all. The Bible says a double He drove them all out of the temple. Amen. And we find the Lord Jesus Christ 
was just literally controlled by zeal. I want you to turn over, if you will, please, to Isaiah chapter 59 with me this morning. Isaiah chapter 59, and the prophet Isaiah prophesied of our Savior and, and how this zeal would affect his life. Isaiah chapter 59, and look, if you will, please, at verse number 14. Isaiah 59, verse 14. The Bible says, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. Look what he says. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and what did it do to him? It, it displeased him that there was no judgment. Verse 16, and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now again, I just want to make a point this morning that if you believe this world and you listen to what they say, uh, they'd have you believe that Jesus was just this meek, mild-mannered man that never stirred up any trouble and never stirred up any controversy. And he was always that loving peacemaker and always very tolerant of all that was going on. And I just came here to tell you that nothing really could be further from the truth. There were times when the Lord Jesus Christ stirred up quite the ruckus. In fact, you don't have to go there today. But in Matthew chapter 23, on a separate occasion, Jesus is back in the temple. And he's preaching to the religious leaders in the temple. You go back and read it, Matthew 23, verses 33, uh, 23 through 33. We'll not go there today. But you go back and read it, and you'll find out that that Lord Jesus Christ addressed them five times as hypocrites. Amen. He then accuses them of extortion. He then calls them blind. He then calls them serpents. And in closing... He finished up with you bunch of vipers. You say, preacher, who preached that? Jesus Christ did. Jesus preached it. I looked that up too, by the way. The word serpents there means sly. It means an artful, malicious person. And so you understand what the Lord was saying. He said, You're, you are malicious. He said, you are, are deceptive. But then that word serpent just doesn't hit the mark. And so the Lord says, you're vipers. And I looked that up and it's the idea of you're poisonous. And the Lord Jesus Christ, again, becomes very zealous. It's amazing that people say they love Jesus. As long as he is the person that they've created in their mind. The little mink, mild, quiet, unassuming Bible character sort of like a monk. He has this robe on. He keeps his hands inside his robe and he walks around and he bows to everybody. And, and, uh, and that's just sort of what the Lord Jesus Christ is. Someone who would never insert himself into your business. One who is perfectly fine with their sinful living. But the truth of the matter is that is not a realistic type of Jesus Christ. Jesus was very passionate at times. Jesus was very zealous at times. Very zealous about pleasing his heavenly father. I ask a question this morning. What are you passionate about? What really flips your switch? What really turns you on? 
What is it that people know that you are, you're just so zealous about that thing? It could be hitting a little white ball around a pasture. I'm not against golf, by the way. It could be a, an inflated pigskin that guys fight over and they kick between two pieces of plumbing at the end of the field. It could be a, a round ball that people dribble down a court and they throw into a basket. It could be shopping. It could be uh, hunting deer. It could be uh, catching a fish. It could be a lot of things. But I just ask us, I wonder what this world knows that we are zealous about. Again, we're, you know, we are, we're mixed up, church. People say, well, I, just, I, I'm just, I don't believe that you're supposed to show your Christianity. Man, chapter, verse. Chapter, verse on that one. We had some folks in here the other day, and we were just doing a walk through the building, and, and I was just, you know, I mean, honestly, just innocently, I was just showing them some of the things we do, and they were like, well, we're not, we don't do that at our church. And I thought, well, that might be your problem. We don't, you know, we don't do that. We're, we're not very vocal. We're not very public. We don't believe that, that you're, to, you're to show your passion. You're not supposed to show your zeal. But I want to tell you today, church, that there are some things that affected Jesus Christ and I believe gave him some amazing zeal. I want to show them to you real quickly if I could. Number one is this, the reasoning of Scripture. Jesus Christ was the living incarnation of the Word of God. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How many know this morning, Calvary, that Jesus Christ used Scripture everywhere he went? He preached Scripture. He invoked Scripture. He emphasized Scripture. He quoted Scripture. He taught Scripture. And no doubt, he even sang Scripture. The Bible says in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, 29, you do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Mark 14, 49, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. John 5, 39, Jesus said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Now again, I'm just saying this, those scriptures, those scriptures had an effect on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, time and time again, Jesus said that the word must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word must be fulfilled. And I want to say, Calvary Baptist Church, that that same scripture that affected him and gave him passion and gave him zeal, if you'll let it, that same scripture, and by the way, the very exact same scripture will affect you and have a bearing on your life and cause you to be passionate and cause you to be zealous about the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our church verse, Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Luke 24, 32, and they said one to another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures. Hebrews chapter four, verse number 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints of the marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is all I'm saying, that if you'll allow it to do its work, if you'll allow it to hit its mark, this book will do something for you that nothing else can. You say, but preacher, I, 
I read it, and it doesn't do anything for me. Let me help you, church member. Even when you don't think it's doing anything for you, it's doing something for you. God has promised that his word would never return void. And so you read this book and you say, wow, preacher, I I read two or three chapters today. And I mean, it didn't zing me. it It didn't wow me. It didn't seem to really move me. It didn't seem to encourage me. I, honestly, it was just a waste of time. I'm telling you, it was not a waste of time. You keep on reading and keep on studying it. But I do want you to understand this, that if you and I are gonna be moved by this book, we'll not do it naturally or physically. It's gotta be the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me read a verse for you if I could. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. If you're going to be moved by this book, if you're going to be encouraged by this book, if you're going to be set on fire by this book, listen, you can't you, you, you can't study it just merely intellectually. Amen. Every day, before I spend time in this book, before I read the word of God, I stop. And I say, Holy Spirit, I yield myself to thee. I yield my mind to thee. I yield my spirit to thee. I yield myself to thee. Thank you for this precious book. Man, don't you love the Bible? Man, sometimes it's just so good, I just have to kiss it. I mean, has the word of God ever got so sweet to you that you just had to hug it? And I'll say, Lord, I need you to teach me. I need you to to show me. I can't get it out of there myself. I need you to, to lift it off the pages, and I need it to make its way into my heart, and I need you to teach me. I'm telling you, if you'll depend upon the Spirit of God, he'll teach you his word, and he'll set you on fire with Scripture. Most of you have heard the story, but there was a young lady and a young man, and they were courting. In fact, they got past the courting stage, and that they were engaged, and they were planning to be married. And one night, as he was over at her house, and they were having a little time together, and they were just making general conversation, and, and she said, honey, she said, you know something I never told you about? She said, years ago, she said, I read this book, and she said, the author's name is your name. It has, y- y'all have the same name. And he said, well, sweetie, I never told you, but he said, I am the author of that book. She said, What? He said, yes, I never told you, but he said, I I wrote that book. And, well, you know what? Honestly, when she read the book several years before that, it didn't do much for her. And so she had taken it away. She had put it on a shelf. It had collected dust and just stayed there for several years. And that night when her love went home, man, she made her way to that bookshelf, and she began to dig through those books, and there it was. Man, she pulled that book out, and she dusted it off, and she got up in the chair and she began to read and she read one chapter and she couldn't lay it down. She read another chapter, couldn't read it, lay it down and read another chapter and before she went to bed, she read the whole thing. And the book was amazing. I mean, the book was just, it was just out of this world. That before it didn't do much for her. But now it's just the most amazing thing she's ever read. You say, preacher, what made the difference? I'll tell you exactly what made the difference. She fell in love with the author. <laughs> 
And when she fell in love with the author, the author began to begin to speak to her through that book. Oh, listen to me, Calvary Baptist Church. If you don't get anything else today, fall in love with the author. Amen. Fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with him. Fall down before him. Worship him. And I promise you, he'll give you something from his blessed book. We find, first of all, the reasoning of scripture, but everybody hold on tight. Number two, there was something else I believe that gave Jesus his zeal. And it's what I call the reality of hell. You say, Pastor, you are not going to preach on hell this morning. I is. And so now, so now, the, the modern day pastor schools that you go to, not ours, but some of the modern day ministry schools that you go to, what they tell you is this, that on Sunday morning, don't preach anything negative. Everything needs to be positive. Everything needs to be uplifting. And, you know, don't, don't, don't ever uh, preach something that's deep or something that's heavy. Uh, you know what? Don't preach anything like that. It just needs to be, uh, you know, encouraging and motivational and all those kind of things. Uh, but I want to tell you this morning, Calvary Baptist Church, I never made it to that pastor school. Amen. By the way, Amen. neither did Jesus. Did you know that Jesus Christ spoke of hell more than any other person in the New Testament? In fact, church, how about this? The Lord Jesus Christ speaks of hell more than he speaks of heaven. In fact, don't take my word for it. You go study it out yourself. But if you read your New Testament, you'll find out that the Lord Jesus Christ describes hell more vividly than any other person in the entire word of God. You see, Jesus was very zealous about letting people know that hell was a literal place. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said that. Mark chapter nine, verse number 43, Jesus said, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into like main than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Jesus said that. Luke 16, 22, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Jesus said that. And may I remind us that it was also Jesus in Revelation chapter one and verse number 18, he, who said, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Now I know not much is preached on hell anymore. But I think it's time we get back to preaching on hell. I'm all about heaven, you know that. Probably, probably the next book that I write is gonna be on heaven. I'm all about heaven. I'm all about singing gospel songs on heaven. I love it. I, I love it. I love to talk about heaven, preach about heaven, teach about heaven. But I'm just saying this, that evidently Jesus knew something that maybe we don't know. And because of that, he preached a lot more on hell than he ever did on heaven. You understand that for the lost, hell should be a concern. If you die today, there are two choices. Not three. Please hear me. And, I, and, I, and I, I ask the Lord to help me to preach this in love today. 
There is no in-between. Well, Pastor, you see, we believe in the doctrine of purgatory, chapter and verse. It's not in there. Well, we, we believe there's this holding place. And you see you die and you go to this holding place called purgatory and, and you, you, you sort of, you know, pay for your sins in purgatory and, and then some of your relatives can pay enough penance and they can pray enough and, and they'll pray you out of purgatory and you'll finally make it into heaven. And, uh, you know, that's a flashy, little, a flashy little teaching. Only problem is it's not in the Word of God. Amen. You see, there's only one of two choices. If you die and you are saved, you're going to heaven. But if you die and you are lost, you're going to hell. You say, Pastor, I don't, I, and I don't like you saying that. I didn't say it. I didn't make it up. I didn't write this doctrine. I'm just telling you what the Lord Jesus Christ said. Psalm 917, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Revelation 20, verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Listen, the thought of people being eternally separated from God and spending eternity in hell, you know what? It ought to do something for us. You say, preacher, calm down. It's no time to calm down. It's time to get stirred up. That's our problem. We've been way too calmed down for way too many years and now we're about to lose America. It's time some Christians get stirred up and say, you know what, I'm concerned. My mama may be going to hell. My daddy may be going to hell. It's time we had some parents who got burdened about their lost children and said, you know what, my kids may be going to hell. You say, preacher, but my mama, my daddy, my relative, they're, they're good people. They're nice people. They're community active. They're, they're helping out with the election. They're, uh, they're a member of the Ruritan Club. They're, they're involved with the JCs. They're, uh, all these different things. But my dear friend, understand that, that good works never saved the first person. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. According to Matthew 25, 30, hell's a place of darkness. According to Matthew 8, verse 12, hell will be a place of weeping. According to Revelation 14, 11, hell will be a place of torment. According to Luke 16, 24 and 25, hell will be a place of remorse. According to Luke 16, 27 and 28, hell will be a place of memory. Memory. The rich man said, I have five brethren still living in this life. Send Lazarus back that he may talk to them. That, that rich man in hell had a memory. You understand, that's probably, that's probably gonna be to the wor- one of the worst things about hell as the people in hell are going to remember a service like this. And for all of eternity, they're going to be saying, I had the chance. I had the chance. That pastor preached on it that day, and I had the opportunity. I could have responded. But I stood back there, or I sat back there, and my pride kept me in my seat, and and I, I knew 
knew I needed to go and God was dealing in my heart, but I stayed. I didn't go. I didn't respond. And for all of eternity, they'll be remembering I had the opportunity. I had the opportunity. I had the opportunity. The reality of hell. So this little preacher is on his way to the church. And every day on his path to the church, he would pass by a glass factory. And on this certain morning on his way to the church, as he went by this glass factory, he noticed the back door was open. And so he thought, wouldn't do any harm for me just to sort of walk into the back door and just, I'd like to see how it works. And so he said, the door's open anyway. I've got a little time. So he slipped in the back door of that glass factory and there he saw that intense heat as they would melt those elements down through that, those flames and fire. And that preacher became mesmerized as he looked at that extremely hot flame. And these words came out of his mouth. Oh, what hell must be like. He turned around and he walked out the door and made his way to the church. It was about a week later. There was a knock at his house. And he went to the door and a young man was standing at the door and he said, come in. And he said, preacher. He said, I work at the glass factory. He said, about a week ago, he said, you didn't know, but he said, I, I saw you come in. He said, I saw you come in that back door. And he said, you didn't know I was watching but he said, I saw you come in, and he said, I saw you look at that flame. And then he said, preacher, I heard those words that came out of your mouth. You said, oh, what hell must be like. And he said, pastor, I have not been able to erase that from my mind. Every day I get up, he said, I think those, about those words, oh, what must hell be like. Oh, what must hell be like? Every morning I get up and I try not to think about it, but I think, oh, what must hell be like? Oh, what must hell be like? He said, preacher, I've got to get some help. He said, can you tell me about heaven? Can you tell me how to miss this place called hell? Oh, listen to me, Calvary Baptist Church, good preaching, bad preaching. I'm just telling you, hey, it is time that we wake up and understand, yes, thank God, there is a heaven and it's glorious and it's wonderful and it's everlasting, but just as sure as there is a heaven, there is an eternal, literal hell. What were some things that caused Jesus to have his zeal? Number one, the reasoning of Scripture. Number two, the reality of hell. Let's bring this thing to a close. Number three was the remembrance of God's house. You've turned away from it now, but in John chapter 2, after Jesus makes that whip and he clears the house of God, can you see the disciples? You understand how big this event is? This is huge. This is like the biggest thing that happens all year for Jewish people. There are thousands there. And Jesus Christ has just run every single one of them out with a whip. Turned the tables over, poured out the money changers' money. He said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And the disciples are back here in the shadows. Their eyes are as big as saucers. They're thinking, whoa. What is this about? And then the Bible says, in John chapter 2 and verse number 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up.
You know, there is little doubt that Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, they raised Jesus to respect and attend the house of God. We know that. Luke 4.16 tells us that. The Bible says about the Lord, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And so it was a custom. The Lord was brought up like that. It was a custom. It was tradition. It was what they did. They always went to the house of God. And this house of the Lord, this place of worship, affected Jesus Christ greatly. The psalmist David in a messianic psalm prophesied about how the house of God affected him. Psalm 69, 9, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. I'm going to make two statements. If you attend the house of God faithfully, it's going to affect you. That's very simple. If you attend the house of God faithfully, it's going to affect you. State number two. If you do not attend the house of God faithfully, it's going to affect you. It's, it's, it's going to affect you. It's going to have a bearing on your life. And may I say, Calvary, don't allow anything to take the place of the house of God. Let's bring this thing to a close. What are you zealous about today? What are you passionate about today? You know, it is a shame, isn't it, that people know that we're zealous about Everything under the sun. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we're dead. And that's a shame. I was thinking about the story. This man, his day of execution has come. The guards have come. They've unlocked his door. They've already fed him his last meal. The warden is present. They begin to make their walk down the green mile on their way to the hangman's noose. And along with them is a minister. He's got a small Bible, and as they're walking down the, the corridor there toward the place of execution, this minister is reading scriptures on heaven. He's reading scriptures on hell. And he's reading them very monotonally. His voice never goes up, never goes down. No passion. No zeal, no burden, not a quiver in his throat. And he's reading all these scriptures on heaven and hell. And the story goes that that prisoner stopped them in their tracks. And he looked at that preacher and he said, preacher, he said, if I believed what you're reading about that place called hell, he said, I'd not only not read it monotonely without any kind of burden, but he said, if I believed what you're reading right there, he said, I would crawl across England on broken glass. And he said, I'd get up on the housetop and I'd shout it from the housetop so nobody would have to go there. Amen. What are you passionate about? What are you zealous about? How zealous are you about serving Jesus Christ? Again, we're done. Do people believe it when you tell them, I'm a Christian? Or is their response, really? 
Really? Well, I never, I never would have dreamt it. Never would have guessed it. You're a Christian? G. Campbell Morgan told the story of a great actor and a very well-known preacher. And this preacher and this actor got together one day and the preacher said to the actor, he said, I've got I've to ask you something. And the actor said, well, ask away. He said, every night, he said, you act fiction. And he said, people come out by the scores to watch you act. He said, I'm preaching the essential, unchangeable truth of God's word. And he said, I can hardly muster a crowd at all. He said, could you explain that to me? And the actor said, that's easy. He said, when I act out fiction, I make out as like it's truth. But he said, when you preach the truth, you make it seem like fiction. Hey, I just wonder this morning, Calvary, when people see you in your life, your testimony, does it tell them that you're born again, saved, washed in the blood? Jesus is my Savior. And I want to be passionate and sold out about the things of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads this morning, if you will, please. As you bow your heads, let me give you a verse, Colossians 3, 23. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Father, thank you for this time we've had together today. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be zealous about the things of Christ. Father, help people to know when they see me, when they come in contact with me, that I'm not just a Christian in name, but Lord, I actually belong to Jesus Christ. May they see that testimony. May they hear my words. May the words that I speak be the words that would please the Lord. May my testimony show the love of God and the grace of Jesus. God, I pray today that you would give us a church at Calvary Baptist Church that's zealous and on fire. And I know we're living in troublesome times, turbulent times. And God, if we're not careful, it's very easy to, to sort of take a step back. But God, I pray today that you'd help us like Christ. Help us to be zealous in our Christian walk. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Just a question or two. The first question is this. I wonder how many are here today. And you'd say, Pastor, if I died today, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I would go to heaven. If you can honestly say that today, would you just slip your hand up and you can take it right back down. Thank you so much. Can I ask this question? I wonder if there might be one here today and you'd say, Pastor, I couldn't raise my hand. And if I died today, I'm not 100% sure that I would go to heaven. I want you to remember me. And you just let me pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to try to come and get you to bring you down. I would never do that. But I just want to pray for you this morning. Preacher, I'm not sure about heaven. I want to go, but I'm just not sure about heaven. I want you to pray for me. You'd slip your hand up right now. Is there one? You'll let me pray for you today? Anywhere at all. All right. Bless your heart. Thank you. Calvary, let's be praying. Oh, what must hell be like? Dear friend, 
I implore you, don't miss heaven for anything. Is there another right now? You'd say, Pastor, here's my hand. Remember me. Not sure about heaven. Would you pray for me? Is there another? Anywhere you'd let me pray for you. I'll not embarrass you. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I wonder how many here today you say, Pastor, I am saved. I've already raised my hand about that. 